Hey everybody, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. We've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today. We've got uh, Dave Serrano joining us for the second time on a podcast. Uh, we had him once before and, and lucky enough to have him back again. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to Coach Serrano, who is just uh, someone that I, I, as a very young coach, knew who he was and was very impressed by him and am and, and a little bit uh starstruck when we talk on this podcast but i'm just i'm very very appreciative i'll give you a background on coach serrano if you're not familiar with you know who he is or where he's where he comes from so you have a better appreciation before we get into this podcast today he is a cerritos california native he played at cerritos college uh junior college for three years he was there from 1983 to 1985 those are those would be the springs um he was uh, his last year. He turned himself into a junior college all-American. He then transferred to Cal State Fullerton in 1986 and played one season there under legendary head coach Augie Garrido. From 1988 through 1994, that's where he had his first uh, college coaching job. He was an assistant coach at Cerritos College for another legendary coach, at least for part of that time, George Horton. While he was at Cerritos as an assistant, they won five conference championships and one state title which is equivalent to uh, winning a national title, the junior college uh, program, junior college system in California, they all play one another, and, and that's as far as they go. So that's basically kind of like winning the, nas- the, uh, the national championship. From 1995 through 1996, he was an assistant coach at Tennessee. He, uh, that team went to the NCAA tournament both years that he was there. The 1995 team went to the College World Series for the first time in, ni- in, I'm sorry, first time in 44 years at the University of Tennessee. From 1997 through 2004, he was the pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at Cal State Fullerton. During his time there, the team won seven regionals, four trips to the College World Series. They won the 2004 National Championship. Uh, Also in 2004, Coach Serrano was named Baseball America's Assistant Coach of the Year. From 2005 through 2007, he took his first head coaching job. He was the head coach at UC Irvine in those three seasons. He went to the regional... uh, Two out of the three years he was there, the 2017, 2007 team won 47 games, which was a school record. They advanced to the College World Series for the first time in school history. Coach Serrano that year was also named Baseball America's National Coach of the Year. From 2008 through 2011, he was the head coach at Cal State Fullerton. That team went to Super Regionals in each of his first three seasons. They went to the College World Series in 2009, 2010, Coach Serrano, in that summer, he spent that summer as the pitching coach for USA Baseball's collegiate national team. Then, from 2012 through 2017, Coach Serrano was the head coach at Tennessee, where he was once an assistant coach. The summer of 2012, he spent that summer as the head coach of USA Baseball's collegiate national team. Uh, Then 2018, he was the pitching coach at West Virginia. In the spring of 2019, he covered games and wrote for Baseball America while also working for Diamond Baseball Academy. He was then hired to be the head coach at Cal State Northridge in June 2019. The spring of 2020 was his first season as head coach, which was obviously an abbreviated spring. Overall, Coach Serrano has been to the College World Series seven times. He's been to 16 NCAA regionals. He has been uh, been to the NCAA tournament six times as a head coach. In 14 seasons as a collegiate head coach, he's compiled a total record of 456 wins to 307 losses, arguably one of the biggest names in college baseball. And, again, somebody that uh, I just it, – it's hard to even believe. I have you on the program, Coach Serrano, and especially for a second time, I sincerely appreciate you taking time with us on the podcast today. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me on. I love talking baseball with you or anyone. And just hearing you go over all that stuff, it just solidifies to me how old I am with all the years that you've covered. So uh, I'm grateful to be on, and I'm excited about today's podcast. Well, not a lot of guys get to do what you do for as long as you've done it, and especially at, at as uh, a high of a level as you've done it. It's become – we talked about this briefly last time, but it's become a game uh, in, in college where, especially as an assistant coach, it's – it's a lot more attractive to sometimes to hire young guys, um, you know, young single guys without families, without kids, just because of the nature and and the uh, the demand of the recruiting world today. 
And, and I want to kind of start there a little bit. Just uh, early on in your career, you were hired as an assistant coach at Cerritos, where you uh, where you played, and then you went straight from Cerritos to the University of Tennessee to be an assistant coach, which is which is an amazing jump, and and not a lot of guys. Um, get to take that kind of a jump early in their career. Can you just kind of talk us through early in your coaching career, Coach Serrano, just, you know, what it was like, what it took to do, you know, what you guys did. You had an incredible amount of success at Cerritos when you were there. And then how exactly, I'm interested to know how exactly you went from Cerritos in California to be an assistant coach at Tennessee, obviously at a very, very high level in the SEC, and, uh, and, but also kind of jumping across the country like that. Kind of interested in the, in the early parts of your coaching career there. Oh, great question, and I've got, uh, I've got the information to share with that. Let me go back a little farther on this, Jeff. Uh, it started back in, uh, in 1987. Me and my very close friend, Bill Moziello, who's the uh, associate head coach at TCU, we were actually running the um, – Connie Mack, Norwalk Birds team that was run out of Cerritos College. And we were having success. We were taking that team to to Farmington, to the Connie Mack World Series. And back that's when Coach Garrido at the time was the head coach at Cal State Fullerton. And that summer, he accepted the job at the University of Illinois. And you'll hear in my story the names Coach Horton and Coach Garrido a lot. Um, so Coach Garrido got the job at the University of Illinois, and he – he recruited and eventually hired Jody Robinson, who was Coach Horton's assistant at Cerritos at that time, who was also my assistant when I played there at Cerritos. And he lured him to Illinois with them to take him with them. So it, it created an opening at Cerritos College. Well, at the time, I was only 23 years old and um, uh, young, still learning how to coach and all that, not very, not very far off of age from the players, just like Bill Moziello. And Coach Horton hired us at that point. He put in a, we, he trusted us enough, liked our baseball knowledge, liked our work ethic, he hired us. That's the great part of the story. Uh, and it was wonderful to get that opportunity. Uh, Coach Horton was very, um, he was hard to work for in a great way. He's what molded me to who I am today <clears throat> with how much he was attention to detail on everything he did. But the truth of the story is the whole time I was at Cerritos as the assistant, and I share this for that assistant coach out there, that young guy that's thinking to get into coaching, is when you look abroad across the country and you see many head coaches, and, and I'll be the first to say, Jeff, I feel so privileged to be one of very few men, and I think it's under 300. I don't know the exact number because some programs have shut down with the pandemic, but under 300, I think it's somewhere around 294 head coaches are guys that can be head coaches at the Division One level. So I don't take that for granted ever. But it just didn't happen for me immediately. I was, which a lot of people may not know, except unless you go through a junior college system, when I was the assistant coach at Cerritos College, if you looked up in the manual of, the, the, of all the, the people that were employed at Cerritos, I was listed under the grounds department, and I was in charge of the baseball field. And that was an easy task. Um, Coach Horton, when he was the assistant, was also the, the groundskeeper for the baseball field, and he was very good at it. So when I took it over, his expectation level was very high on exactly how that field was going to look. And Strews College was a beautiful facility. still is. So that was mowing the field. That was edging the field. That was changing out sprinklers. That was fertilizing the field. That was airifying the field. That was uh, doing everything, changing, you know, doing everything that that field needed. And I believe, as I look back, that's what created my work ethic to what it is today. Um, because I didn't just work on the field and go home. I worked on the field, and then I showed up to practice, and I threw BP. I stood down the bullpens for the pitchers throwing. I hit fungos. I did everything a coach should do, too. So I did that for many years, and, and I, I loved it. It wasn't just a it wasn't just a Monday through Friday job like most groundskeepers would do. I would show up on Sundays because that field was my baby. And I go back to what I said, who I was working for, and how attention to detail to everything. And I didn't want a dry spot on that field. I didn't want a bad hop on that field. I didn't want a, a bad-looking edge on that field. So I'd show up on Sundays, which was always our off day in junior college, and put on the quick coupler sprinklers, and I'd get out the edger, I'd get out the mower, and do the patterns when no one was around. No one was ever around. And um, and I was at that time, at that time in my life, I was in my mid twenties uh, as I was going through that job. 
And with the, the full-time grounds position, we had a coaching stipend, and uh, we split the snack bar. I was making about $32,000. And I'm not saying that to brag. Back in those days, that was a lot of money. But it leads to my next part of the story. So uh, as being the assistant coach, um, there was always a lot of four-year colleges that would always come out. We, we had a lot of talent at Cerritos always. But they weren't always just looking for our players. They were looking for other players. And Larry Simcox who was a longtime assistant at Tennessee, he was my assistant at Tennessee during part of my tenure as the head coach, came out and he was asking about players from around our area. And here's the one point that I want to make on this. I was always very honest about to Larry about a player's ability. I never tried to oversell our players, nor did I try to oversell anyone else's players or undersell them. I was always honest with them about what my thoughts were about a player and if he would be a fit to what they were trying to build at the University of Tennessee. Well, that led to, again, Bill Moziello, who was the assistant at the time at Tennessee, took another job at Ole Miss. And that led to Larry and head coach Rod Del Monaco thinking, who's someone we can get that has ties to the West Coast that we feel can develop players um, and be a good assistant coach? And back then, that was the restricted earnings position. And let me explain for the, for the listeners, the restricted earnings position back in those days, the 90s, was you were capped off at $16,000. You can make $12,000 from the school, and you also, well, I don't I don't believe there was benefits, I can't remember, I don't believe there was benefits, and you can make a max of $4,000 in camps. You couldn't make more than $16,000. Better than the volunteer position now, but it was a cap. Well, again, I go back to Coach Horton, and I remember when they had come out to me and offered me the job. I called him. I said, well, coach, I'm making 32000 plus here at Cerritos. I was 28 years old, and I'm saying, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, do I want to take a $16,000 cut to move all the way across the country to a place that I've never lived? And I'll never forget his comment to me. He says, well, Dave, one day I'm going to be a head coach, and I'm going to want to hire you, and it'll be a lot easier to hire you if you have Division One recruiting experience. And that's all I had to hear to make that decision to go to Tennessee. And it was the greatest decision I ever made in my life, to be quite honest with you. Yes, it was a little bit more struggle financially, but sometimes you have to go backwards before you go forward. And I guess my point in this for the young coaches is that everybody wants to move so fast. Everyone wants to, wants things to happen so fast. It didn't happen fast for me. It happened at the pace it was supposed to happen. And even as I was climbing, I kind of went backwards if you want to consider financially more or less as being backwards. But it was the best decision of my life. And again, my point to young assistants that are out there grinding, and I truly mean that quote-unquote grinding because that's what I share with every young coach that's thinking about getting the game, is you've got to understand the grind you're going to go through for little pay before you ever see reap the benefits of making something financially in this game. And that those words are very powerful in my mind. And I think it should hold true. It basically holds true for most assistant coaches that are trying to climb the ladder. It's. I would bet that most college coaches that would listen to this would have similar experiences at some point. And I shared with you before we started recording this that I was also. I uh, had a job at Winthrop when I was the volunteer. I was the majority of my pay came from the grounds crew. I was. Uh, I was a part of the grounds crew, but my only job was to take care of the baseball field, but the grounds crew paid me from about two-thirds of what I made. Um, but also, you know, had a similar uh, experience in a way, you know, going backwards to go forward. I was, I went from a Division One, where actually when I, I left this, the first, my first job was at a Division One where I went to school, and um, I was a vo- I was hired as a volunteer, but after my first year, I was promoted to the second assistant. Then I found a good opportunity at a junior college. I went there to be the recruiting coordinator. I thought that experience was going to be really well worth it. And then I went back to be a Division One volunteer. But I, in my opinion, I was taking a step up because I was going to a higher level, um, and that's really what what I wanted to do. And then from there, <laughs> and I don't mean to take over this podcast, but from there, the top assistant at Winthrop got the head coaching job at Lewisburg, a really good traditional junior college in North Carolina near Raleigh. And, uh, and I went with him to be his recruiting coordinator there. Just, he and I had a great relationship. I thought we could do some really good things there. After one year, 
he then got the head coaching job at Moorhead State, Division One school in Kentucky. Now, he offered me an opportunity to come with him there, but I was really interested in being the head coach potentially at Lewisburg. So I talked to some people that I knew, and, and my, my real question, because I ultimately wanted to end up at the Division One level again, and my, ultimate, my question to some peers was, am I better off to go to Moorhead State uh, a program that really hadn't had much success and try to build something here or am I better off staying at this junior college where we just went 52 and nine we were ranked number one in the country midway you know about two-thirds of the way through the season um, am I better off staying here and and running a program that can win 40 plus games you know it seemed like we were kind of set up to do that almost every year and and some people that I asked seemed to think that it might be an issue getting a label as a quote-unquote junior college guy. So that's kind of my question to you now and why I told all that story is to come back to you now, Coach Serrano. Um, I mean, you're, a Divi- you're still a Division One head coach. You've, you've been a Division One head coach for a long, long time. Do you look at, uh, at guys from other levels? And I, I just want, to, you know, want you to be as honest as possible, just trying to get people good information. Do you sometimes have a hard time looking past what level a guy is coming from. So just say you have a position open and some people apply for the job in there, just say division three head coach or assistant division two head coach or assistant, a junior college head coach or assistant who's interested in coming uh, to coach with you. Do you look at, at, at anyone's situation and just for whatever reason, like I don't see this level translating to success at this level, or do you don't think that, do you think that that doesn't really matter as much? So like if you're a division three coach, uh, is there a chance that a guy gets a Division three level where he's going to have a hard time moving up? Do you think that's true in, in the game where we sit today? Uh, and, is it, or, and is that different from when you were first starting out? I think that's a wonderful question, and I, I'll start out by answering it this way. I think we all get caught up in the labeling people and in regards to what level they're at. I think a good coach is a good coach, and, and I truly believe that. I, I went to the junior college level to the Division One level and had success. I'm sure there's been people that have done the same thing. I'm sure there's been people that have gone to the Division One level or JC level, the Division One level, and not had success. But I, I believe that we can't get caught up into labeling people what level they're at because a good coach is a good coach. And um, I, I think that it, a lot of it has to come from relationships. I think I don't care what anyone says relationships have everything to do with guys getting jobs and not getting jobs. And it's who you know, it's your connections, it's who you've branched out to. I think one of the best things that I did in my career when I was the assistant coach at Cerritos is I went to Alaska one year and coached with Bill Moziello, my good friend, another name I bring up a lot on this. And we were assistant coach at Mats- with the Matsu Miners, and I didn't realize at the time I was going to coach summer ball and I was excited to do that but the amount of people that I that I um, came in contact with that summer had become powerful over my career so um, I'm glad back in my days of starting out that I wasn't labeled as a junior college guy Um, but to answer your question we always want to keep moving up in our careers I think some of us, and I'll, as the story will go on, um, as we talk more, you'll hear it from me. I think there's some times we get caught up into dollars, decide a big portion of our decisions. And I don't think that that's um, the most necessary, should not be the, the most important issue. Money is important to everybody. The more you make, sometimes the happier you are, sometimes the, the less happier you are. But I think money plays a part in it. But I think it's, I try not to label people in regards to what level they're at. I respect, and I tell players this on the front end, I tell players this that come to our camps, is that is shoot for the stars. If Division One baseball is what you want, go for it. But there's plenty of great opportunities at Division Two, Division Three, NAIA, and in the state of California, there's wonderful junior college programs just like there's all around the country. So I don't frown upon any lower level. If someone's having success and consistency, whatever whatever level they're at, and that they're a good coach. And it doesn't matter what level. It doesn't a Division three coach would not necessarily shouldn't be uh, told that he can't coach Division one because he's coaching at a lower level. I don't believe in that. I, I believe good coaches are good coaches, and and they can coach at any level. You know, coaching isn't all about just the scheme. It's about how you deal with people, how you motivate people, how organized is your organization. 
those are all things for me that, that, that create good coaches. I'm interested in one of the things you just said there about making connections and it really more than anything, a lot of times getting a job is about who, you know, it's about the connections that you've made and it's about the relationships that you've built. How as a young coach would you suggest, how would you suggest that a young coach make these, make such connections, get to know people, build relationships without coming off as a self promoter, without doing it, as an obvious um, reach to try to get a job. And, I, and I'm saying that with sort of tongue-in-cheek as well for for guys that there's a big difference between, in my opinion, between on social media wanting to share good information to help people. There's a big difference between that and sharing information because you hope that somebody sees it and hires you. And I think that you can smell it when people do it on social media. So I'm just wondering as a young coach, how would you suggest that a guy go about building these types of relationships uh, without seeming like you're sucking up or you're doing it just to try to self promote and, and hopefully get a job someday? Well, I think, I think it's about putting yourself in front of people. And what I mean by that, and I'll share this with myself and many head coaches out there is that our time is pretty limited because our focus is first and foremost in our program. So to be able to sit down and meet with people all the time with assistant coaches that are aspiring to get to know you, uh, to be quite honest with you, it's hard to do. But what I mean by putting your face out in front of somebody is, is going to work in a camp. Now, not all the time is the head coach going to be out there, but his assistants are going to be out there. And assistants are going to read at the places I've been at, come back and say, boy, so-and-so was a great worker. Boy, that guy's really got a lot of energy. He teaches well. He's great with the kids. Being at recruiting events, the whole staff's not going to always be there, but some of the prominent programs that work hard, they're going to have people at these events. And if they continually see your face at these things and continually see, see you working when you're at those things, that's going to translate when that list comes. I go back to the story I told, okay? Uh, every time Larry Simcox came to Cerritos, he saw me on the field working on the field doing stuff, but I always took the time to answer his questions about players in our program and players in other programs. And that was something that he stuck in, that stuck in his brain. So when an opening came open at Tennessee, I was one of the names he thought of. It was something, it was a face that was familiar to him and a person he was familiar with. So I think there's a lot of different ways to get to know, uh, so people can get to know who you are. And really what decisions come down to, you talk about relationships, that's a key thing. But work ethic and what kind of, how do you carry yourself and what kind of person are you? That's going to, that's going to determine a lot as, as, and being in the right place at the right time, to be honest with you too. I mean, there's a lot of times that you're just in the right place at the right time and, and someone starts talking to you and, and maybe there's a job opening and he's heard good things about you. But I think there's a lot of ways for people to get to know you and your work ethic and your style than you having to sit down and having coffee with a head coach or having a lunch with a head coach there's camps you can work on the recruiting trail and that's why i think it's so unfair jeff with the volunteer position how the ncaa has not allowed that position to become full-time with those young guys who have a ton of energy and are trying to get in the business and trying to move up the ladder are not being seen on the road by other coaches and how hard they work and they're trust me there's a lot of volunteer coaches. I do not like the word volunteer at all when it comes to coaches because they're, yes, they're volunteering their time with no pay, but they're not volunteering. I mean, they're working their tails off. And I think some of the best coaches out there are those guys that are in those positions. They're hungry and they've got a great work ethic. And um, so I think, I think it's what I said. I think it's just being around people and putting your face in front of people and let them decide where they put you on their scale with their respect level and not try to, as you say, kind of suck up to them. Just let them decide by, by your work ethic and your personality. I kind of felt that way, how you just said it, when I was volunteering at Winthrop. Um, you know, we had a great field. We we're, we we're, you know, obviously in South Carolina. So we had tournaments all through the summer and even sometimes during the fall. And uh, so I, but one of the reasons they hired me is because I had recruiting experience. I was a recruiting coordinator at a junior college and they, they wanted a volunteer who could also basically scout these uh, tournaments that were on our field. 
and I did that. It was great. But at the same time, I was kind of thinking, I don't know how I'm ever, how am I going to move up from here? Like, how's anybody even going to know who I am? Of course I would go work camps anytime I could to number one, to see kids, number two, to try to make some money, but number three, to meet people. But a lot of times you're working camps with other, a bunch of other volunteers. Um, and I was kind of, kind of like you said, it was like, I, I'm working my butt off here. I think our field looks great, but I don't know that anybody is is able to just see what I'm doing. I think it's going to be hard. You know, I, I kind of at one point was like, how do you meet anybody to get a job from here? And, and of course, I, I would have stayed at Winthrop forever, but you never know when a job's going to open up. Uh, and luckily, some things worked out because the, the top assistant got a job and he took me with him. Um, Coach, if you and I are in an event together, we're scouting. Okay, there's a, there's a game happening. We're, we're at the same tournament. We're at the same field. I see Dave Serrano. Dave Serrano has no idea on earth who I am. What is a way that I could approach you to say hello, to introduce myself? But again, uh, just I, I was uh, that was something that I was always kind of I, I did it, but I was hesitant to do it, and I was careful with kind of how I did it because I wanted to watch that game, and I wanted that person to watch me watching that game, watch me working. But I also wanted to say hello just so you, you kind of make a connection. Hey, the next time you see somebody, like, hey, well, I've met this guy before kind of thing. What would you – how would be a good way for me to approach you at a tournament if I knew you, you didn't know me, and I just wanted to get my face in front of you and say hello? Well, I, I, that's an easy answer for me. I and I'm speaking for myself. I, I hope that anyone out there uh, that ever sees me or runs into me realizes that I'm very approachable. I do not feel like I'm above anybody, and nor have I ever felt that way. I have, I've had to work for everything that I feel like of where I've gotten to. So I, I don't feel I'm above anyone. So that's the first thing, I, is to approach the coach. And then another thing, and I won't deny, I, let, I, I learned this from Coach Del Monaco in my time that I was with him at the University of Tennessee as his assistant, is it's never a bad idea when you meet somebody to follow up with a note card the day after. And, you know, you get that note card, and, you know, if you're head coach, you just met, I just met you, Jeff, at a game, and, and yes, we had never met before, and you came up and talked to me and said, you're an assistant at Winthrop or wherever you're at at the time, and, um, you know, we have small talk for a while. We're both trying to work. So I would say I'd probably encourage, unless the, unless the coach you're going to talk to really starts to feel talkative, I wouldn't take up a lot of his time because he's there to work. But then maybe the next day, put a little note card in the mail and just say, Coach, it was really a pleasure to meet with you. Uh, thanks for giving me your time. Uh, if you ever, you know, something like that. I think that is a big follow-up that I think is something that coaches and people, and I, I'm not just saying that when you meet coaches, just when you meet people in general. If, if, if it's someone that you go up to and meet for the first time, how powerful it is to follow up with something like that of a note card, and which you know, not too many of us do anymore. We send texts, we send you know different, different kind of um, social medias now, but just a, a note card sent to the office, and I think that's a powerful way for that guy to never forget who you were. Real interesting. I send some personal notes sometimes to people, and occasionally I'll get a, a message back that says something like, "Like, wow, that's that's old school, and I, I I love to see this. Like, thanks for that." That I think people think that think it takes or feel like it takes a more time and effort to do that to send a you know a handwritten note as opposed to a text message. You know, I think that means something to people. So great, great point there. Um, Coach, I want to go back to something else that you said a little while ago now when we were talking about coaches from other levels and, and your perspective was basically if a coach has success, then he's a successful coach. It doesn't so much matter to you what level he comes from. And, and that brings me to something that um, I'm very interested in. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. And, and, you know, obviously feel free to open up as much as you want, or if you want to kind of skim over this, we can skim over it. But I'm looking at your record as a head coach. Three years at UC Irvine, your win totals went from 31 to 36 to 47. Year two, you make the regionals. Year three, College World Series. Then you're the head coach at Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton. Your win totals, 41, 47, 46, 41. First year, you go to a Super Regional. Second year, College World Series. Third year, Super Regional. Fourth year, you go to a Regional. Then you go to Tennessee. 
and things never really materialized there for you. Um, the team seemed like maybe it was starting to take a step forward on paper in, in your third year, 2014, as the team went 31-23 and 23 overall. Um, a little bit better in the conference that year than the previous two years. But then it didn't really continue to progress from there. Is, do you mind talking just about what happened? And, and I'll ask this by, by preview by, – you know, uh, Previewing a little bit by telling people that now, just say now I talk to a kid who's looking at some colleges and he says, Jeff, what do you think about this college? And I'll look at him a lot of times and say, hey, look what the head coach has done. And what the head coach has done is probably what's going to continue to happen, even if he's been at some other schools. Okay, this is his first year at this college, but he's the previous three colleges where he was the head coach, he's had a ton of success. He's probably going to win there as well. And I think that's pretty safe to say most of the time is that winners win. And, and kind of no matter what level, even if you jump from – I don't know if you, would, if, you, if you could consider Cal State Fullerton a mid-major. It's not in a Power 5 conference, but it's obviously one of the – it's a very, very traditionally excellent baseball program. But going from there to the SEC, where just the competition level every weekend is what it is, I, I, you know, what, whatever made the difference there, can we just talk a little bit about what happened and, and why maybe exactly things didn't work out for you there like they did at Irvine or Fullerton? I have no problem talking about that because it's been part of my growth and my evolution as a coach and a person. Um, as you just shared with your audience, it became really simple really quickly for me when I became a head coach, and that was following a lot of success as an assistant coach. And I believe a couple things happened here. Um, one, I probably didn't take uh, – I didn't look upon what the SEC, what a giant it really is. Um, and why I say that is because when I was at Irvine and Fullerton, there was many times that we'd play SEC teams. We'd play them in weekend series or we'd see them in the regionals or super regionals. And we usually fared pretty well with them. And as you shared, uh, uh, Fullerton isn't really a mid-major back then or Irvine, but they're in a smaller conference. They're not a power five. And so – when I took the job, and, and to make a long story short, all the decisions I've made in my career, once I left the University of Tennessee as an assistant coach, was to someday hopefully have the honor of being the head coach at the University of Tennessee, if it worked out. So that was my dream job, quote unquote. It really was. I've been in some special places, uh, but that was my dream job. And when I got that opportunity, I was, one, a little in awe at my dream had come true. Uh, two, I was being paid more than I ever thought a baseball coach would ever dream of ever being uh, making. Uh, my family at the time was moving to a community that I would love to raise my family in. And I lost perspective of who I was and, um, and how hard of a grind it was going to be to take a program that had not won for the previous five to eight years and at the level that it, that is the expectation of the SEC. And I lost, I believe, what I shared with you of what made me who I am today as a coach, the guy who worked on a field, okay, the guy who was dragging the field, the guy who was putting the hot dogs on the, the, on the cooker and all that in the snack bar before the game. Um, I lost that because now someone was paying me a lot of money and I think I lost my work ethic. Um, and it's, it's, it's crushing for me to say this and share this, but I think it, it's very good for someone to hear this because I wouldn't want this to happen to anyone else throughout their career. It, it allowed me to grow. It allowed me to learn about myself and what I'll never let happen again throughout my career. We had other challenges, too, at the time. Okay, I, I, I take full responsibility, but there was other challenges, too. I, I've heard this shared many a times. We did not win at Tennessee, and I want to emphasize that. Not even close to the level of what my expectations were or that universities or fan base's expectations. But in overall the big picture, we didn't lose. And what I mean by that is we lost on the score or we lost on the scoreboard. But in regards to what I inherited, what that program was at that time, I believe when I left and handed it off, or when it was handed off to Coach Patello, it was in a much better position for a chance to success, and he's taken that run with it, than it was when I took it over. 
And so I don't want to, I don't look at it as a failure completely. We didn't win on the field. And that's what you get extensions for. And that's what you keep your job for. But I feel I lost my edge is what, who I was. And I don't know if it was the limelight of what that community puts you into as the head coach of any sport at that university to the amount of money that I was making that I felt I made it. I heard an interesting comment last night during the Dodgers-Brewers Dodgers, uh, game when they had uh, one of our former players at Fullerton, Justin Turner, was mic'd up during the game, which I didn't agree with, but they do it. And he made a comment about Mookie Betts. Then when the commentator asked him, what could you tell us about Mookie Betts? And he said, it's unbelievable how that guy is trying to improve his game every day. He's trying to get better every day. I shared that with my players this morning on the Zoom that we had um, at, at Northridge, is that here's a guy who just signed a 12-year contract. He's set for life over 100 different lifetimes, okay? And yet that guy shows up to the field every day to improve his game, okay? That's Mookie Betts, who's one of the best players in baseball. So where I'm going with that is that's where I feel I lost it because I feel I felt I made it to the top and that my past success was all going to take care of itself because of the past success that I had had in three-game series or maybe a one-game series against SEC teams, and I thought it was going to become easy. And so what that translates to is maybe we aren't recruiting the right players. Maybe we think we can make these players into great players. And I'll be the first to say to every coach out there, when I've had – really good players that are committed, we've been really good teams. When I haven't had a lot of great players that are committed, we're not as good as a team. So as much as we could take upon ourselves that we're the ones as coaches that are making the success of the program, it takes players to do that. It's interesting. I didn't bring up Mookie Fred. Mookie Betts would have been, from the previous staff, not me, not my, me and my coaching staff, Mookie Betts would have been my, a freshman my first year at Tennessee. I was on the phone. The draft, the signing deadlines were different back then. Uh, they had until a certain date in August, and they had until midnight of that certain date. At 11.30 p.m., the night, the Red Sox, or the last night of Mookie signing, I'm getting off track a little bit, but it tells the story a little bit about Tennessee and the lack of success. I was on the phone with Mookie. And at that point, they were under 300000 And he had said, Coach, it looks like I'm coming to school. I didn't know Mookie Betts at that time. I just knew that I had heard he was a really good player and that we needed to keep him. And I think he was a seventh-round draft pick, if I believe. If I, I might be wrong on that. Well, then at 11.50, I called him again. And he was still, they had come up a little bit, but he wasn't signing. At 11.55 p.m., five minutes before the signing deadline, Mookie calls me. The Red Sox didn't sign someone higher than him, and they had just doubled it, I think, to seven hundred fifty or $800,000, and he was going to sign. And I couldn't tell Mookie Best not to sign. I wouldn't tell anyone not to sign for that amount of money. And so that was kind of what kind of led to, to the Tennessee. It was things like that that happened, of losing players, not recruiting the best players all the time, um, maybe laziness by me. Um, I'm not getting out there. I've, I've been known for uh, being a recruiter on the West Coast. Maybe I delegated too much because now I was the head coach at the University of Tennessee and I felt I was bigger than what I used to be. And those are all the traps I think I fell into that didn't allow me to become as successful as I wanted to be and needed to be to keep my dream job. And I think, I hope that's a lesson for anybody that, um, uh, if you feel you reach the top, you still got to be working hard because you could be replaced uh, very easily. And I learned that the hard way. I learned that the hard way. At the end, when I felt it slipping away, we tried to work harder, but it should have been from the get-go. And there was other unfortunate things that happened. I broke my leg the first year I was there, so it kept me off the road a little bit. There was a lot of things that happened, but those are all excuses. At the end of the day, I reached what I felt was the top, what my dream job was, and my work ethic going all the way back to Cerritos College in 1988 were not the same in 2011 when I accepted the job because I got 
got caught up too much in the, the frills things of having the job. And it's easy to do in a place like that. You're in your camp, your face is in front of the camera all the time. Everyone wants to pat you on the back. You're the baseball coach at the University of Tennessee. You have over three, 400 people at your press conference. It's hard not to get caught up into that trap um, when you get put in that. And unfortunately, I did. And I wish if I could go back, I would have been, I, I'm sure I'd change a lot of things. I know that's something that I've kind of carried with me, especially when I coached, and now I, I pass it on to kids when I have an opportunity to, is just the minute that you feel like you've arrived and you let yourself relax is the minute that you're going to lose what made you who you were in the first place and, and got you to where you were. And I think you see that sometimes with major leaguers who sign long contracts you know, I think that speaks a lot to Mookie Betts that he signs that contract and still does what he does. There are, you'll see major leaguers all the time that sign long contracts and are never the same again. And maybe something else changed, but I think a lot of times it's because they they know they're financially set, and that gives them a feeling of complacency um, it, it, for for one reason or another. And and obviously then then they don't end up performing. And it happens the same, I'm sure, with a lot with a lot of people and a lot of different. Uh, walks of life, not just in sports or baseball. Um, Coach, if you had to, if you had an opportunity to go back there, or even if you could, you know, everybody talks about this kind of stuff, I think, from time to time, but if you could be the the 20, if you could go back to 2012, spring of 2012, or, or summer 2011 when you got hired, and you could just speak to yourself at that time, or if you could go back with what you know now and go be that guy, what would you do differently? What would you change? Um, in your opinion, what would you change that could have made Tennessee as successful of an endeavor as your other stops have been? Style. Uh, that's an easy question for me, style. Um, you know, we get categorized on the West Coast, having a West Coast small ball baseball. And I'm not, I don't like to categorize that because I don't think it's considered small ball. I consider it baseball. It's just a different form of baseball. I, I just believe that at many times we were trying to coach a different language than our guys were understanding. And I think going back to that evolution, I think change is good sometimes. I think style should have been changed. And then in, in turn, if styles changed, then the type of player re recruiting has changed. Um, we need to become bigger, faster, stronger. And, you know, when I look back to those six years I was there and, and towards the tail end, we were getting it, um, but it was a little too late, is that every team we played in the SEC was bigger, stronger than us. And um, uh, it started the first year. The first year it was what it was. It was the players that, you know, that we had um, coming, that we had inherited, and uh, we were a very small team. But I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this, Jeff, and I have no problem with it. There were some years that we were just But I think what we maximized in that first year, nothing against any of those guys on that team, but we weren't left with a lot. And some guys left during the coaching change, so on and so forth. And, um, and we lost some players. I mentioned Mookie Betts. There was another player that had signed um, in that draft. And uh, I felt what we did that year, even though the record wasn't very good, was probably the most, uh, the biggest overachievement that could have happened because that team on paper had a chance to end up being 10 and, 10 and, uh, and 46. And we ended up doing better than that. At one point, we, we looked at each other as a coaching staff a little ways into the SEC and looked at each other and said, how are we fooling people? And then sure enough, we hit the skids and, and it really got tough after that. But I think it was style and I'll take full responsibility for that. Cause I was the head coach and which would lead to different recruiting aspects of our needs of what we were trying to do. We tried to play a West coast baseball in the SEC. And I think where we got fooled by that is what I said is that, it worked on a weekend series. It worked in a super regional. It worked in a in a regional where it's one on one game. But when you play thirty games, it doesn't work. It won't work over thirty games, and which is the SEC schedule. And we learned that the hard way. So you would have adapted what is traditionally more the SEC style as opposed to bringing the style you had been yes, playing absolutely. on the West Coast. 
Absolutely. And we're, again, where the trap I got caught up into is because when we'd play those teams, like I said, in short stints, we would kind of confuse them a little bit because they weren't used to that style. And but over a 30-game stretch, the three-run home run, the power arm is going to usually win out, to be honest with you. It's interesting to hear you say that just because of the way that Major League Baseball has progressed and, and has sort of abandoned the, the small game um, and, and really trying to manufacture runs, to use that term, and, and it's really become about the power arm and about the three-run home run. And um, It's hard to argue against that. You wish sometimes maybe a team had the ability to do that when they needed it. <laughs> just to score a run or two uh, in different situations. But, but no, I totally uh, understand what you're talking about in the SEC. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to compete, especially if the team wasn't built that way uh, to begin with when you got there and you're sort of starting from scratch uh, as far as building your roster. Um, what would you – to kind of go back again to that time, are, are there anything – are there any priorities that maybe slipped a little bit that you wish you, again, if you had a chance to go back or now, now that you're at, that, at Cal State Northridge, that maybe you, um, you lost sight of a little bit that have now become priorities again for you, whether that's in recruiting or whether that's, that's your, uh, your relationship with players or whether it's how you coach your assistants or, or whatever that may be. Um, were there priorities that you had early in your, in your head coaching career that maybe got lost a little bit when you went to Tennessee? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not too proud to say I lost myself, to be honest with you. I forgot who I was, um, who I'm supposed to be. Uh, you know, when I became a head coach in 2005, or the summer of 2004 at UC Irvine, my biggest, the biggest thing I had to adapt to was my love for being an assistant coach and the relationship you have with your players. And I don't care what anyone says, um, players have a different relationship with the assistants than they do the head coach. It's whatever it says, because it says head coach on your business card or on your door, or because you're the one that stands in front of the team and talks all the time, most of the time, uh, the player just has, is more standoffish to you. That was hard for me to adjust to. That was really hard because my personality is, will always be as an assistant coach. My better friends in baseball are assistant coaches. I'm not one of those coaches that only talks to head coaches. I talk more to assistant coaches. As going back to, I don't look down at people. I look equally with people. And I feel I lost myself. I feel like my relationship with my players, and probably part of it was the tension, because I wanted Tennessee to be so successful, and this is not selfish on my part, I wanted Tennessee to be so successful because I was there in 1995 when we won that that regional against Oklahoma State in Knoxville. And I saw the passion of the crowd. I saw the excitement when we were crowned to go to the College World Series. And I wanted that back for that community and that university so bad that instead of work ethic, I feel like my personality changed because I put too much pressure on myself to get it done. And I didn't stick to the process that it was going to take a little bit of time. But if we stuck to the work ethic, the process would end up coming out as it was supposed to. And I think, you know, as good as it felt to be asked to speak at different clubs and be in front of different cameras and be always asked to go do something, that wasn't helping our team become successful. And I got caught up into that. And the other thing is, is that I'm a people pleaser. I like to try to make everyone happy. And when you get in that position, you that is impossible to do. That's impossible to do. You're going to you're going to hurt some people's feelings. You're going to have to make some tough decisions. I didn't want to over recruit and any one of my assistant coaches that will hear this podcast will agree they've heard my comments behind closed doors. I wasn't going to over recruit. I wasn't going to be that coach that in December was talking to 15 to 20 guys and tell them they had no longer had a spot at this university because I go back to what I probably shared in the first podcast. I wouldn't be doing what I'd be doing right now as a coach if that was the case back when I played. I would have been one of those guys that would have been moved on. But looking back at that, that's many of the reasons why I didn't. Be, we weren't successful 
and and again, I went outside of myself. More of my personality change of who I thought I was and not who I was supposed to be. And that would be, probably be the biggest thing if I if, if and I know I changed that way back in Northeast now. I'm more back to what I was when I was at Irvine for those three years and at Fullerton for those four years. I know for a fact I'm more of that coach than I was at Tennessee. And there's a lot of factors why that happened. I mean, like I said, uh, not from some for selfish reasons and some for giving reasons for the fact that I don't know if anyone in that community wanted that place to win more than I did. Not to get an extension of my contract, just because I wanted to do that for that university and that and that community. So what happened after the University of Tennessee? Um, things end there. You spent a year as a pitching coach at West Virginia. But can you kind of just talk us through personally, emotionally, what that was like for you and, and obviously having to – uh, compartmentalize what just happened at Tennessee, why that just happened, how your life was kind of thrown upside down. Uh, can you just kind of talk us through what that was like for you? And, I, and I'm asking, I hope you don't take this to, as to, you know, put salt in the wound or anything, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm interested to know, because it seems like you're in a great place right now, how just what that what what happened between then and now to get you back on course and, and just sort of the way that um, that you – looked back at Tennessee and, and had to look in the mirror and, and find out what exactly happened and ask yourself some tough questions. Can you kind of talk us through what life was like after between, you know, Tennessee and, and now? Well, it was, it was a, the ultimate learning process, um, learning experience, I should say. Um, I won't deny there was, uh, there was some emotions to that just because I had, I felt um, in my coaching career, whether it was an assistant coach or a head coach, it was the first time that I ever really felt failure over an extension amount of time, uh, basically six years of failure. That was hard. That was difficult. Um, uh, there was a lot of people that it affected. It affected assistant coaches that I, uh, that I loved to death. It affected families. Um, so it was hard because I took that all on my shoulders, but it was, uh, it was a learning experience, and I had to get off the mat. We've all heard that cliche before. I had to grow from it. I couldn't sit back and feel sorry for myself. I couldn't sit back and point the fingers at anyone else. I needed to grow from it, and I needed to get better from it. Um, as I shared on the original, uh, the first podcast, I uh, was out of baseball as a coach. Um, or I went to West Virginia for a year and was away from my family, my boys. That was a very difficult year. Um, I was, I had lost a job that I wanted to keep forever. Um, I was now living in West Virginia, nothing, nothing bad about Morgantown, West Virginia, but it was from, from a guy that was from the West coast, you know, Knoxville was a jump, but then Morgantown, West Virginia was even more of a jump. And especially when you're doing it by yourself and you're reflecting on what just happened in your career that, uh, you were at the top of your career and now you're back to being an assistant coach, but there's nothing wrong with that at all. So then after a year, um, I decided to get into, uh, uh, I was lucky enough that Baseball America reached out and asked me to be a college baseball analyst. Uh, I had aspirations of going into work with ESPN. That didn't work out because they were not hiring, but I wanted to be a commentator for ESPN, which has always been a dream of mine to, to commentate and talk about baseball on TV. And that year was so great because not only was I watching baseball, I was learning baseball. And at my age, even then, with all the years of experience, I was able to go watch how coaches were running programs to this day. And you said something earlier about the younger and newer generation. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm in my mid fifties now. And, you know, as hard as it is for me to see, to see this is that the generation gap for me to our players is drastic now compared to when I first started. So I had to learn how some of the younger, more energetic coaches were doing things. And energetic was a big part of it too. Jeff, I needed to change some things within myself. I had, Towards the tail end of my of my years at Tennessee, maybe due to stress in many parts of my life and my career, I started putting on a lot of weight. And I'll never forget this day. It was September 1st of 2017, um, so a little over three years ago. I kind of had to come grips to myself and say, the only thing you can control is your health. And your health is going to lead to a lot of healthier choices you make in your life and energy in your life. 
And from that day on, I committed to conditioning every single day. And it's made me better. And it's made me stronger. And um, but it, So all that stuff took part in why I think I am where I'm at today at Cal State Northridge, why I'm a better version of myself today than I was. And again, I had to go back. I have to always go back and think why and wonder why it happened. And I don't know if I'll ever know the answer. I think the best answer is I just got caught up in something that uh, it wasn't too big for me. I, I will never agree that it was too big for me. I just wasn't prepared as much as I needed to be prepared to take on that giant to be successful on a daily basis. A couple more questions, Coach. Just uh, just a couple of quick ones here, hopefully. If you were talking to a coach today who is on his way up quickly, and maybe that guy doesn't even listen to this podcast, I don't, I don't know, but a coach that's on his way up uh, and moving pretty fast through the ranks and has a chance to maybe go to that sort of a level, is there any sort of quick advice? And I think just a couple of days ago, I think back to uh, the unfortunate the presidential debate that we just watched, and, um, and, and, I, and shortly after that I heard someone else just talk about how, how much things have changed and uh, George H.W. Bush passed a note on to Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton went to office and basically just wished him well and said, you're, you're our president, you're the president you know, for, for, this, for everyone in the country and just I wish you well and uh, I'd love to give you advice if, you, if I can help you in any way and, and, um, and just how much things have changed there. But I think back to that note and just think of how much that must have meant to President Clinton at the time. Is there a sort of, if you had a chance to sort of pass on a quick sort of note like that to somebody with a couple quick tidbits of information from someone who's been there to someone who's about to step into those, that those shoes, those big shoes that you would fill in a power five type of school. Is there any sort of quick advice, like one or two things that you would pass along to someone? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, going off that note, you just talked about, I actually saw that note and I've seen it before. Is I'd leave a note on that, on the desk of of that young coach or that new coach coming into that kind of, uh, atmosphere and say you've got this job because of who you are now don't ever forget who you are and um, I try to I try to relay that to our players I think that's one of the things that players get caught up into when they come to the division one level is they don't understand who they are because they're trying to be something different and that's exactly what I got caught up into I didn't I needed to be who I was and not try to be something different and um I think that would be the best advice is that you got that opportunity because of who you are. Don't change and understand who you are. And I know that doesn't, for some that might not make sense, but it makes all the world of sense to me is that, uh, you know, players sometimes don't know who they are. I hear that a lot from my pitchers is that when they come in that professional year, they want to be like this guy, this guy, this guy that all throw in the nineties with my capability only throwing 86 miles an hour. Well, that's, if that's the best you are, then be who you are. And don't try to be something different because that's when you fall into a trap. Boy, is that good advice <laughs> for anybody, a baseball player or otherwise. Uh, really, really great advice, no matter where you are in your life. And last question, Coach, and then, I'll, and then we'll wrap it up here. If you had a chance to go back to a Power 5 school, would you do it? Yeah, I would do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Um, uh, I'm not looking and pursuing to do that, um, but I, I would do that um, in a heartbeat. I, I'm a competitive guy, and um, uh, my goal when I came to Northridge was to make it the best that I can make it, whether that's um, going to the College World Series. That's our dream. That's our goal, but to make it the best that we can. Uh, I understand how the format is set up now, and because of uh, resources and all that, it, it does make it, and, and the recruiting prowess that a lot of kids want to go to Power 5 schools, so there's a lot of advantage to that. That doesn't mean that, that uh, a mid-major conference can't get to the College World Series, but I like winning at the highest level. I like being part of that kind of um, spectrum, so I wouldn't have a problem doing that. I don't, there's, from my past um, lack of success and failures, that doesn't scare me away from taking on a challenge, but I think at this time of my career, the challenge would be something that I think could be overcome. Uh, it'd have to be at a place that, that has the resources and has the, the athletic department support and has the facilities to be able to compete and maybe the weather too to be able to compete on a national uh, national stage. 
That's really great stuff. Coach, this has been amazing. I'm truly feel very honored and blessed that you um, chose to come on this podcast not once but twice. This is Dave Serrano, everybody. He's the head coach right now at Cal State Northridge um, and, and somebody that I think has just got a lot left in him, uh, a lot of baseball years left, and I'm excited to just kind of see what you're what you're able to do there. Hopefully we see what the Cal State Northridge team does in 2021. Hopefully the team is on the field. But, Coach, you're somebody that I just have a, an incredible amount of respect for, uh, believe that you're a great leader and, and someone that, like, you could see your kid you know, you could see your son playing for someone like you and, and feel very, very comfortable sending your kid. And they can't say that. I can't say that for everybody that I come in contact with, certainly, and even everybody that's been on this podcast. But uh, I just think you're such a, a great baseball person with a, a, a background that anybody can learn from. And I just feel very, very blessed that you uh, join us in the podcast. So I just want to thank you for all the time and everything that you shared with us today, especially. Well, Jeff, I want to say that I want to close out with this, and, and I mean this. It, it's an honor to be able to speak with you and speak to your listeners about my experiences. And I'm hoping that if there's one person out there that this helps, then this was well worth it for me. And uh, I love I love uh, talking baseball. I love being around baseball. It's been my whole life. And I, I wish everybody out there, uh, uh, I want everyone out there to stay safe, and hopefully your seasons aren't affected by by the pandemic, and we can all enjoy baseball again very soon. But thank you for having me on, Jeff. I truly appreciate it. Thank you, Coach, and best of luck to you.